Hello, and welcome to episode 38 of the Decarceration Nation podcast, a podcast about radically reimagining America's criminal justice system. I'm Josh Ho. Among other things, I'm formerly incarcerated, a freelance writer, criminal justice reform advocate, and the author of the book, Writing Your Own Best Story, Addiction and Living Hope. In a few minutes, I'll get to my interview with Suki McMahon of the Square One Project about their efforts to reimagine our criminal justice system. But first, the news. Yesterday, I posted my recap of Orange is the New Black Season 6, Episode 13, which means my journey through Season 6 is finally over. This week, we took we, we also got the news that the show will be ending after Season 7, so I guess what that means is that I only have exactly 13 more recaps to write, which sounds a little dramatic, but after something like 78 recaps, I'm, you know, ready for, ready to move on to a new project. Uh, I was part of an amazing event at the Coldwater Prison here in Michigan last week. You might remember earlier this year, I interviewed the creative team behind the Oscar-nominated documentary Knife Skills. At the end of that interview, the director of that documentary, Thomas Lennon, challenged me to carry his message, or Brandon's message, Brandon Krastowski's message, into Michigan prisons. Well, I took that challenge literally, and with the help of John Cooper of Safe and Just Michigan and Kyle Kaminsky of the Michigan Department of Corrections, we were able to bring Knife Skills and its star Brandon Krastowski into the Coldwater Prison, into the correctional facility, in order to start making our plea for broadening the culinary arts program with inside of Michigan prisons. It was a really amazing time. We had people from the Restaurant Association. We had people from the legislature. We had a bunch of people from the MDOC. Obviously, we had Brandon. And most importantly, we had all of the participants in the culinary arts uh, program or the culinary tech program, I think they call it, at Coldwater Correctional Facility. Uh, and, you know, there were so many great moments. I mean, uh, the, the, the guys in the, in, the, in the program got to watch the movie and they got to ask Brandon questions, which was one of my favorite parts of the entire day. Uh, and that was really moving, too. And Brandon came with gifts for Chef Hill. Uh, he brought foie gras and some really cool salt that I guess only chefs know about, some kind of secret salt that has a weird kind of sweetness to it. And at the end, uh, Brandon got all the chefs uh, in training to sign the program so he could take it back with him. Anyway, it was a really great day. Uh, they made us a five-course meal that was just spectacular. And uh, we had a really good time. It was just good to be around the guys again inside. And uh, it was good to meet Brandon face to face. And it was super nice of Brandon to come down from Cleveland uh, or up from Cleveland. I'm not really sure if I'm doing geography uh, justice here, but uh, for that for that event. And uh, I'm just, you know, I, I really thank the, the MDOC, the Michigan Department of Corrections, for uh, doing the work necessary to allow me to come in. Uh, and thanks to Warden Nagy for allowing all of us to do this. And hopefully the end result of this will be a broadened, uh, culinary arts or culinary tech program that moves uh, so that many more of the people in in Michigan prisons will have access to learning high-end culinary skills so that when they come out, they have a chance at better employment. Okay, let's get to my interview with Suki McMahon. 
Suki McMahon is on the staff of the Square One Initiative, which asked the question, if we started over from Square One, how could justice policy be different? She is the manager of the Square One Roundtable on the Future of Justice Policy Project. She's the chair of the Austin Justice Coalition, which is a black-led grassroots organization working on local and statewide criminal justice reform in Texas. Uh, and also educational justice, community empowerment, and civic engagement. She has a ton of other credentials, too lengthy to list all at once, but I'm thrilled to have her as my guest today. Hello, Suki. Hello. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me today. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, So I always like to start by asking people to flesh out their bio. How did you get involved in this work? How did you end up with the Square One Initiative? How did you get from Texas to New York? You know, whatever you want to share. (laughs) Uh, sure. Well, um, as you said, I am the board chair at a local grassroots group here in Austin, Texas called the Austin Justice Coalition. And um, a few years ago, we started a program with the Urban Institute. Um, it was a pilot program or pilot survey here in Austin, Texas. We went to the most policed areas in Austin to get a really authentic survey about um, perceptions of policing. And through that work, um, we formed this relationship with the Urban Institute, one of who went to Columbia on the Square One Project and is now my peer and colleague. Uh, Her name is Anamika Duivetti, and she is the manager of the other component of the Square One Project, which are the executive sessions. So, you know, it's one of those uh, who you know situations. But uh, she told me to apply for this job, and she said that it's the perfect job for me, and I agreed. And I applied, and here I am today, and I'm um, I'm really glad to be a part of the Square One Project. I think that as a community organizer myself, it's good to kind of bring that lens into this setting because, um, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a very academic setting, and I think that uh, Square One is trying to be really genuine and intentional about bringing in community members, community perspectives into this project so that the community engagement aspects of it are just ingrained and baked in. And I think that um, that's a good reason that I'm here. And um, yeah, that's just kind of how everything happened in the to make a long story very short. That's actually good to hear because I have a lot of questions about how the community is going to be engaged later. But uh before we move on, uh, I do want to hear a little bit about how you originally came to the work, though. How did you get involved in the Austin Justice, Austin Justice Coalition and in you know the kind of work that you're doing? Sure. Um, well, I um, first started in activism quite a while ago, around 20 years ago as a teenager. And um, I was with a group out of New York called um, Refuse and Resist, although I lived in Lubbock, Texas. <laughs> there was not not a huge contingent of activists there doing human rights activism, but um, it started way back when, and then it's just something that's kind of lived with me. Um, And then when I moved to Austin, we had um, very soon after, no, not soon after, but we had the the Sandra Bland killing here um, just down the road from Austin in uh, Waller County. And it's about two hours away. And uh, I I think it just hit, close to home in more ways than one. And um, it was kind of a time for me to just throw myself into this work. And um, I joined the Austin Justice Coalition back then. And uh, back then it was more of a protest group. Uh, 
And as we started to gather people in the group, we decided to pivot to policy because there were other protest groups. And we figured if we're all on the same road, um, it's easy to target that one road. And, you know, um, so we decided that if you have uh, different groups with different methodologies towards the same end, um, we would, one of us is bound to get there or all of us are bound, bound to get there. So, um, that was a plan. We shifted to policy. We've had a lot of success in doing that, um, sitting at tables where uh, we wouldn't have sat at before or been invited, um, such as, you know, at um, with Austin um, Police Department and rewriting their de-escalation policy, their use of force policy, and um, encouraging and eventually getting them to um, do more training, implicit bias training, de-escalation training. So um, we've had a lot of success in, you know, really um, putting ourselves into these seats where uh, we might not have been welcomed, but they couldn't deny them. So um, that is kind of uh, the background there of how I uh, got started here in Austin as a as a community organizer. Now, I lived in Texas for a long time myself, uh, but more in the North Texas end. And I guess the perception is always that Austin is so much more uh, progressive than the rest of the state. But it sounds like a lot of the same problems. Yeah. I mean, I would say it's progressive for Texas. That's, that's just, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, that's saying something. I mean, Austin has certainly its fair share of issues. I mean, it's still a hugely segregated city. Um, you know, the black population is about 7% here, but we're, oh, uh, 12% of, uh, stops in you know, 24% of searches about the same amount of arrests 50% of use of force so uh, obviously we're disproportionately um, subjected to the criminal justice system here so um, there are a good share of uh, issues that stem from you know racial issues racism and uh, issues that we are constantly confronting here. And, you know, the thing about living in Austin and the reason that I'm staying is that although it's hard, um, I will have to say to be a person of color living here, especially when we're such a small percentage of the population and so underrepresented everywhere, even at dinner at restaurants. Um, we know that the work we're doing, not just locally, but at the Capitol, we have access. It's here. Um, we know that that's impacting the rest of the state. So I think the people who are here are devoted and uh, kind of invested in that statewide change. Although, you know, the living is sometimes a bit tenuous, <laughs> but livable still. Well, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Not great, good. but good. I'm glad it's yes. livable. <laughs> yes, it's, it's, it's like a damning with faint <laughs> praise, really, you know. Uh, no, I mean, all in all, I mean, it's, yeah, I could praise Austin. I, you know, I am not uncomfortable here, but I could be more comfortable. But I don't know where elsewhere I would be more. It's, it's yeah, just I'm not a, it's sure a, there's a place in the United States <laughs> right now where it's true. That's I, I think hate that's to the say that, line. but uh, <laughs> that's that's about what it is. You know, it, it's a place, and I I'm making do, and it's you know the work is here, and. Wherever I went, the work would, I'd still be doing the same work. So let's just do it here. I know this area. I know what I'm doing. I know the people and we're gaining a voice. So I think that's what's important. Uh, but yeah. 
That's, so, that's it in a nutshell. I should probably just, I know I, I'm, I'm, belay, I'm spending a lot of time on Austin when really we're going to talk about this <laughs> Square One project, but I am interested since you brought it up in how, given what you just described, you were able to convince them to change the use of force policy, which has been a struggle all over the country, and what actually you changed. Right. So um, the word de-escalation simply did not exist in the policy before we got to it. Um, and I think that that was a problem. I think that, you know, the police force here, the brass, um, are promoting this kind of progressivism. And we just took them to task on that. Honestly, um, a few years ago, after the um, task force report on 21st century policing came out, we took that and we kind of Frankensteined a bunch of uh, best practices and de-escalation and uses of force into a single document. And simply after a lot of research, we have a policy team at AJC, Austin Justice Coalition, and we proposed that to the chief and he took it and uh, vetted it with the police association and city legal. It was I'm making it sound really easy. It was a, a long, years-long process of lots of meetings and red lines and still some disagreement in the end, but they took the entire portion in de-escalation, um, knowing that we were looking at the right places, offering them a tool, I guess, you know, taking some of the work off their shoulders, if you will. But I think that it was it was valid. There was no reason that they should have or could have said no based on their, how they were presenting themselves. So I think that it was, um, to their credit, you know, it was a big move in the right direction, in a positive direction for um, community and police relationships, um, trust building even, although, you know, there's a, a huge divide between policy and culture. And, you know, we're also trying to ensure that that's, there's a, a meeting ground in the middle there too. So, but, um, you know, essentially, I, I'd say that you just have to be brave enough, bold enough, persistent enough, educated enough to to say that this is the right thing. And um, it's hard to to say no. I mean, you could. It depends on where you are. We are in Austin, so um, maybe it was we're in this somewhat of a unicorn of a of a situation right now. But um, it just. Uh, it just really did t- take us just doing it and being present. Ultimately. Well, definitely good that the unicorn was there, I guess. So. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. I mean, um, we were in the midst of a lot of changeover, um, a new DA, a new police monitor, a new police chief, a new city manager. So there was this moment also where <laughs> it could have been that we were the most, uh, grounded, rooted thing, I guess, as a, a community group, because everything else was somewhat in flux. And so I think that we just uh, maybe took advantage also or seized a moment where we knew that we could really push for change. Um, yeah. Well, thanks for doing that work. I mean, I hope everyone eventually gets to that point. That would be great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, you know, I, I, I decided that I wanted to do this interview because, you know, I've interviewed Bruce before, Bruce Western before, sure. and I usually just try to, whenever he seems to be doing something new, I try to figure out what it is. <laughs> so the elevator pitch uh, about reimagining the system that I talked about earlier from Square One is great, but could you flesh out the story of the Square One Justice Initiative for everyone a bit? 
Yeah. So um, the Square One project is kind of a brainchild of Bruce Western and uh, Jeremy Travis, uh, who's the um, executive vice president of the criminal justice um, at the Laura and John Arnold Foundation. And, uh, you know, they just really wanted to to look at reform and justice reform and think if we just started based on what we know, all the facts, all that we know about justice and safety in America, what will we do differently if we could just start over? And, um, and that's the general, just that's a general idea. That's kind of, I think they they must've had some dinner discussion and decided, yes, that's, that's the thing that we're going to do. Um, and so they, out of that came this idea that um, if we had an executive session, if we brought in the the people who are doing the work, the, the advocates, the um, academics, the uh, policymakers, the practitioners into this closed door setting and really just had them um, commit to a three-year multi-sessioned um, uh executive session, essentially, where they would write papers and really sit and formulate some new ideas. And then if they were to take some of those ideas and pull them out into the public in these roundtable sessions, which is essentially what happened um, just this year, and to really kind of bake that with the public too. So I think that they really wanted to have something familiar with these executive sessions or familiar with those. And also the roundtable sessions are somewhat of a, a, a child of the uh, reentry roundtables that they had. And to really kind of bring these two elements together and join them with a community engagement aspect as well. And um, essentially the idea is if we have all of those interacting intersectional components that in the end you could have something that's you know truly going to be a, have the possibility to change the paradigms um, of justice and how we approach it but it really does take you know bringing in what's been done using those as springboards to build something different and um, it seems, I know I, I'm sounding somewhat abstract. Um, it is a lofty but realistic ideal, I feel. Um, and as a, a community person, that's also why I joined because I feel a type of investment in pulling in all of this work that's being done and really trying to, to network it um, to make it whole because often we work in these silos. So, um, that's the general idea of the Square One project. There are these these three components that will all kind of congeal uh, in the course of this three to five year project. As a formerly incarcerated person, I'm constitutionally obligated to ask this next question. I think I saw two formerly incarcerated people involved in the two parts of the project. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, so we have Daryl Atkinson and Vivian Nixon, both who were formerly incarcerated people. Uh, we do feel like it's so important to have that lens on this project because, um, you know, they will have kind of the keys to their own liberation and to other folks who are experiencing the criminal justice system. Um, so that was an essential element of the project. 
Okay, and thanks for including them. Uh, but the same, I guess my question is, uh, is there a reason why they seem to be kind of a distinct minority on the panels? Was this by design or, you know, in terms of formerly incarcerated folks? Uh, no, you know, um, I, I understand what you're saying. And I do, under, I do see um, clearly that they are uh, in the minority as far as who is, who has a seat at that table. Um, and I know, I don't think that there was a checkbox for how many of um, how many folks would be represented. Cause uh, we certainly do have, you know, community members. We have a lot of academics. I do think that uh, there is a, a, an imbalance there, I guess. Is that, I'm not sure if that's the correct word, but there is a, a, a large number of academics, but I think that, um, the, they'll also carry a lot of weight in the in the dialogue. I'm not sure if you got to view our launch um, live stream. It's still on our YouTube channel, but uh, Vivian Nixon stood out during that as someone who could um, just speak to the realities of the justice system. And uh, I think that you bring up a good point too. I think that as we move forward, the the lists thankfully um, are kind of living documents, if you will. Um, each of these. Oh, and I do want to point out that um, uh, Marlon Peterson, the host of Decarcerated, the Decarcerated Project podcast, is also um, in the the roundtable as well. And uh, he is someone who was also formerly incarcerated. Yeah, and um, and that we is have something similar that, podcast names, so we're familiar yeah, with each other. True. <laughs> um, and you know, you you bring up a question that was brought up before, even uh, when we uh, talked to folks in Durham um, about the project, and they said, "Well, do you have people who are formerly incarcerated?" And while we do, um, you know, there could be more. As again, as a community person who. Um, came into this project, I think that um, there, the representation there could be stronger. But I do know that Daryl and Vivian will be remiss. I don't, that's not even a strong enough word. They will absolutely speak to and with strong clarity, um, the realities of the justice system. So I, I know that there's a voice there. And um, I do feel confident in that as well. Um but I'm glad that you called that out as well. Um, if it makes you feel any better, when I interviewed Bruce, I asked him the same question about his reentry project too. So. <laughs> no, it's it's your absolute duty, I think, to point that out. And it was mine when I came in and uh, you know fleshed out the rest of the the list. I brought in um, a lot of the 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 people who are doing kind of the boots on the ground type of work too. So I think that um, probably uh, wherever we go, that's going to be the first thing that uh, we notice, right. Is, you know, what's missing here and um, what can we do better at? So I'm going to take that as, um, you know, really constructive uh, as I move forward with these round tables to make sure that, there is a good balance. Um, oh, absolutely. Intended that, as constructive. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, I'm really confident in this first round table too. I think that the papers that we've been getting uh, do talk. Um, we have one from uh, Nancy Levine and Leah Sakala from the Urban Institute that uh, points to a lot of the community work and, you know, 
they reference websites for community groups. And I just think that's brilliant. It's not, um, it's not as densely theory based, which I do appreciate the theory, but um, it was really refreshing to see references to here is what's actually, you know, kind of happening in the communities. Um, I love all the research, you know, we don't, as my group doesn't get far without it. We love the data, but it's also nice to know, oh, so I can look up this group in Chicago or the Decarceration Nation podcast, and I see what the, the work that's being done out there. So um, I, le- I, want, I just want to point out that a lot of the conversations will be based on um, what's actually happening out in the world. So uh, that's going to be a huge element because you can't really talk about racial and um, economic inequality without pointing to real life situations and um, encouraging people to to look at that to see what the the best practices are what the policies can come out of that and you know to really pick things apart and that's part of the process that's going to be happening in this room great um and you know and the good thing about having these community members and these people who have been impacted as they're you know it's really um a speaking truth to power moment in this really kind of critical mass of people where we have, you know, DAs and chiefs and, you know, all of these people who are here to listen, to learn, to grow together. They've all kind of invested in the idea of square one. So there is that as well. So, you know, we, you know, I, for instance, probably read at least four or five new papers a week you know, that come out academic papers about uh, mass incarceration or about different elements of mass incarceration. Uh, You're trying to come from a perspective of coming up with new ideas, but who are you hoping that the project speaks to or how is the project going to be different than just another set of papers that come out? Yeah, that was actually the question that I asked when they were um, interviewing me because, you know, you interview back. Mm -hmm. Uh, in those situations. So um, that's a great question. I think right now we're looking at, you know, bringing this to the policymakers. I think that uh, a big part of the project is kind of to have a, a substantive starting point that's, you know, focused on the reform, um, ju- justice reform. And uh, we're really looking at pushing these out to the policymakers. Um, but, you know, as a community person, and this is, you know, the element of the um, community engagement um, is that, you know, I can't help but see, again, this critical mass of people who are doing these studies basically together, who are really kind of fleshing out these ideas. And, you know, I see the ability to not only take these directly to policymakers, but also to influence them as people who are watching the roundtable, because, you know, we do have this open to the public. There are live streams of all of these events, um, and people can attend in person. And so I think that, you know, it's the takeaways for the community and for the public in general are also there. Um, sure. But, but I think that uh, you you mm-hmm. and I both have, you know, do some of the on the ground work, too. And we probably both have talked to legislators a million times. And there's a certain right? you know subset of kind of built in 
uh, you know, uh, beliefs that you have to overcome to even get to the point where they're going to, and if you're really suggesting radical change, sometimes that's a much heavier lift. So do you have like kind of a vision when you get to legislators, how this is going to move policy in a different way than the the work that all of us are already at some level doing? I'm not trying to be cynical. I'm actually just trying to Mm -hmm. get a better picture of the project. Right. Well, you ask a good question. Um, I think a, a, a lot of this process, I'm talking about in the room, the things that are being done and the language that's coming out of that. I think that there are a lot of terms that we use, even, you know, criminal justice, um, you know, the idea of taking the criminal aspect out of that and just saying, you know, the justice system and justice reform, because there are so many aspects to justice that we can talk about. You know, we're talking about, you know, I, I believe in your um, your the agenda that you have in your um, podcast, you have kind of your personal agenda for criminal justice reform and, you know, like the turning around of concepts that we have. And I don't think that they're so deep rooted in the legislator's mind that they can't conceive of. Um, there's a comment that you made of, that another friend made about um, prison administrators acting like hospital administrators. Yeah. yeah, and, yeah. You know, really, you know, preparing people for life outside. I think, I really do think that concepts like that, that are square one thinking can begin to, to change the minds, change the language of our legislators, because I think it's a matter of putting these ideas out there. I don't think that, you know, we're just so stuck again in, in the way things have been done. And I think that we're at this turning point. I think that there's a lot of different areas where ideas are changing even with like the the me too movement and how things are kind of being turned on their heads where you know there are voices where they're having the voices and new ways of thinking about things and i i I really do think that that's an important part of this square one project is to really change the language in the policy community and give these these different set of tools um that are familiar as well um that um, I know that we're looking at radical change, but I just feel like we're already almost there. And I think that, again, when we go into these offices and, you know, we're able to say things like, um, we probably don't want to say that we're disrupting a system with legislators that probably will not sit well with them. <laughs> but <laughs> I think that, um, if we're able to really craft a new language that is understandable, you know, treatment over incarceration and, uh, you know, diversion and really share with them these ideas and package them. Um, I don't think that it's as tough a sell as it has been or as it, as it will be if we don't, if we have this new language. Makes sense. Uh, so one of the problems with going back in a time machine, you know, which in a sense, you know, a counterfactual is what, you know, they call it in the academic world. Sure. Uh, the, you know, one of the problems with that is that it depends on who's doing the traveling. In other words, we carry our own biases back with us. True. Uh, and so how are you accounting for kind of the perspectives of the people in the room as you go back to the, to square one, if that makes sense. Right. Well, you know, I personally uh, don't want to go back in time. There was never a really good time in our history for people of color. So the idea is not to go back. I think that the idea is to go full forward 
but just rethinking what square one is. Um, so there's no going back. There's no unkilling of Trayvon. There's no undoing, you know, Jim Crow. So I think that the idea is to start now. And again, with this, this new language, that's what the, one of the key goals of this project is, is just to provide almost a new dictionary, a new set of words for people to describe going forward, what justice can look like. So, um, it does take kind of a, a buy-in, you know, from the people. I think it's going to start with people like you and me and the people who are in these rooms um, at the square one who have kind of um, bought into this idea. And, you know, the nice thing about this, as you said, that, you know, we have people who are formerly incarcerated. We have, you know, people who are sitting at the top of different foundations. You know, we have, uh, you know, organizational leaders and they all have different audiences. And that's kind of the beauty of, you know, how this roundtable in particular roams around the country and kind of disseminates all of these ideas. Um, so, uh, yeah, in general, I think that, um, that's going to be our, you know, kind of our swan song, if you will. And that's interesting because earlier you talked about how one of the things you liked about the project was that it was going to eventually be able to interact with communities. Uh, and so I guess my next question is, you know, a lot of the communities, like when you talk about, for instance, violence, you know, you were talking about the problem of violence, which usually when I talk about that, and I think this is what you are talking about too, because of the work that I've seen so far, is the notion that the way we treat people who have a committed violent offenses uh, probably does isn't the best in any, like in terms of safety, in terms of outcomes, in terms of whatever. And so at the end of the day, how are you going to make sure that that perspective is represented uh, and how are you going to reach those communities, the sometimes seemingly invisible stakeholders, if that makes sense? Yeah, that does make total sense. Um, so I think that by being really intentional, like when, when we go to, uh, when we go to Durham and when we go to, I think that our violence round table will be in Detroit. And, you know, I think that, um, there's, there's somewhat of a reliance of the people who are on the ground and doing the work too. And that's part of, you know, really trying to work with the community and know who's there and know who the players are as well. Because, you know, we are absolutely beholden to the people who are living in these spaces if we're going to come and kind of occupy it. Um, so I think that, um, yeah, I just want to talk about um, one of the papers that, was submitted for the this roundtable um, by Martha Minow, um, and it it talks about you know how differently we treat our our youth in the United States, you know who are in you know uh, involved in in gangs, and how differently the rest of the world treats their um, their their young people who are caught up even in something as extreme as um, being ch- uh, child soldiers and how there is a forgiveness and there's an understanding of how they would have gotten involved in that and how we do not in any way give any allowances to our children here. So I think that for one, a part of the, a lot of the dialogue that's happening in the setting too is really questioning, you know, why we start with, uh, you know, a punitive uh idea of justice and 
Um, I think that that's something that um, as a community person, I appreciate having discussed at this level as well. Uh, and really kind of putting a, a face onto that issue of being, you know, this idea that of criminalization of just our youth and namely um, youth of color. Um, and I think that um, for communities like, you know, we're doing this first round table at um, North uh, Carolina Central University, which is an HBCU. And I think that even for the the students at that school who even just recently went through a police shooting, well, it was, um, I think, a kind of a, a security guard um, who shot a student there at NCCU. Like, they're kind of reeling from that, too. And this whole idea of having this conversation just next week about criminalization of youth, I think, is going to really hit home. And I think that there will be some attention and some interest in that conversation. And I think that that conversation will directly go out and touch that community and possibly impact the policies around um, who is policing the students, how they are policing them, where they are policing them, uh, what they're basing their policing on. You know, it is an HBCU, so they do have a high density of Black students. So I think that... um, there are kind of immediate um, implications for these kind of discussions in these communities. Um, and I think we're trying to be conscious of what's happening in all of these places, you know, um, and taking these conversations where they will matter most. So at the end of these things, I always ask the same several questions. So the first one is always, where did I mess up? What didn't I ask you that you were hoping I would ask about the Square One Project? <laughs> Right. Um, well, I think that you covered a lot. Um, let's see. We didn't talk a whole lot about the executive session, although um, we do have a t- completely different manager for that uh, for that work, um, who, as I said, came from the Urban Institute. And um, the idea behind those executive sessions, again, is to bring in kind of this critical mass of uh change agents to have these conversations. Um, and, you know, it's kind of a, an interesting thing. It's um, I've actually never been a part of an executive session, but I know that the idea behind them is to kind of draw in these people, have them invest, and it's kind of a safe zone for them to really say the things as honestly and as forthright as they can, put it all out there and to kind of workshop these ideas, which I think is brilliant because what's come out of it is this first um, roundtable and, you know, where it would be and why it would be in Durham. And so um, the connection between the two projects is uh, prevalent always. It's kind of a sine wave of, you know, executive session and roundtable and how they interplay. Um, so I think that's a really important part of the, the Square One project. And um, yeah, I think that's one of the things we didn't discuss, but that I can't, that that's pretty, pretty much, you know, what I have to say about it anyways. Um, and then the last, oh, sorry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the last question. I, I, oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, you're, you're fine. Go ahead. I was just thinking aloud. I think that that, I think we're good. I think that covers it. Okay. So the last question I always ask is what questions, if any, do you have for me? Right. Well, um, 
so you said that you have you've interviewed Bruce on his book, mm-hmm. and um, do you have a an interest? Like, what? How does does this project speak to you? Uh, yeah, I mean, I do think that you know, I mean, the the tagline for my podcast is uh, a podcast about radically reimagining America's criminal justice system. So it's sign of a mm-hmm. we kind of have the same project in a lot of ways. What I'm trying to do right. is to talk to as many people who have innovative ideas as I can to try to hopefully get people out there in the, you know, whoever listens to podcasts to start thinking about criminal justice in a different way. And you're Mm -hmm. doing kind of the same work, but through different methods. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm always interested in seeing what innovative comes out of a bunch of smart people trying to come up with different ideas. Right. We know that the ones uh, well, we have now aren't working. So <laughs> that's true. You know, it's you know a need to fix, but it's it's not an easy fix. No, not at all. Um, well, one thing we're asking everyone who's participating or observing the um, roundtable and has interest in the project itself is how do you reimagine justice? I'm sure I've I've read a lot of that in your podcast, but I'd like to hear it from the horse's mouth. How do you reimagine justice? Well, I mean, I think the first thing is, I mean, it probably at the root is are two things. The first one is treating everyone with humanity. And the second one is uh, not engaging in punitive, in purely punitive justice. Uh, you know, I'm a very big advocate for restorative justice, uh, I definitely think that uh, part of the problem is that with almost with very few exceptions, there are better solutions for almost every problem than incarceration. And so part of it is, that, you know, the whole process of incarceration to me is a process of intense dehumanization and otherization. And when people come out the other side, we then double down on all of that. And the end result is terrible outcomes. And so you know, my goal is at first to start by literally treating everyone differently, you know, and, and then kind of working from there. And, you know, I mean, I have a, my own 300 different ways that we can fix the system, but, right. you know, and a lot of them are way, you know, different, I think fairly innovative. Some of them are just ones that other people have come up with that are good ideas. Uh, and some of them are projects that have worked in, you know, in different states or in different localities. But, uh, you know, I think at the very beginning, you have to just, you can't look at the system the way we look at it now and expect it to change. You have to start from a position, a different position, I think, or put people who make people subjects in a different way. I totally get that. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's the silver bullet, isn't it? Just treat everyone with dignity. But I think, you know, we're so deeply far into this thing that we really do have to, to reimagine justice reimagine all of it so i am totally on board with you yeah and that just made me think of something else that i think is really important it's not uh, the whole notion of justice we've unfortunately conflated with punishment that somehow if someone's punished that what the outcome is justice and i just don't think that's accurate (laughs) i don't think you know some people may believe it now like if you unfortunately are a victim of a crime you know, you've been sold for your whole life that the way that you get justice is by making sure that the person is brutally punished. But in the end result, if that results in that same person committing another crime, how exactly did that, you know, what justice came out of that? You know, right. I, I, I just, you know, we've got to stop conflating justice with punishment, you know, I mean, in my opinion. Yeah. 
at all. No, that's, that's 100%. Yeah. That's well, uh, so we're, you know, that's, that's really all I had. I'm so glad you took the opportunity to come on. It was great to talk to you and thanks for doing this. Thank you so much, Josh. I was really glad to be a part of your project as well. Well, thank you. And I, when you're in Detroit, I hope you all will let me know where I'm supposed to go and listen or whatever. Yes, so. of course. We absolutely will. All right. Thanks all right. so much. Thank you so much. Okay. Now my take. Since the very beginning, the tagline for this podcast has been Decarceration Nation. It's a podcast about radically reimagining America's criminal justice system. Seems like multiple organizations are also engaged in this quest, too. We just had a long dis- discussion with Suki McMahon of, of the Square One Project, and over the last few weeks, the Vera Institute invited a group of activists all from all over the country to take a tour of progressive prisons in Europe as part of their Reimagining Prisons project. Obviously, the problem with trying to imagine a counterfactual is that we are not actually at Square One. We are actually in this country. We're we're having problems even getting marijuana legalized, much less reimagining our entire system uh, of prisons blown up and restarted. So why should we start engaging in this process anyway? Well, I suspect it's so that we can start building up a common language of meaningful reform among supporters so that when people say, well, what would you do? We have evidence-based and data-driven answers uh, with real examples from across the world of how this might work. You know, uh, I was at the Safe and Just Michigan annual membership meeting a week or so ago, and they had some experts uh, that were experts in kind of storytelling and telling your story. Uh, They were doing a presentation, and one of the suggestions was that you should start by finding out or understanding someone else's values or the things that are important to them, and then directing your messaging right at those values. Uh, For instance, if the value is ensuring public safety, as you might remember from the very first episode of this podcast, we know that prisons, as currently constructed, do not enhance public safety, and that alternatives are almost always uh, better or have better public safety outcomes than prisons as they're currently constituted. So that would be an example of how you can kind of speak to the values of uh, the, the, the people that you're trying to convince. Uh, another problem is that people oppose the idea of reimagining prisons because, uh, you know, we shouldn't be trying to reimagine prisons. We should be trying to close prisons. And I think this is it is important here to remember that we bo- that we can both be for the long range project of getting rid of prisons and also for improving prison conditions uh, for the people inside as long as prisons and jails do exist. Uh, like I said before, we are struggling to even get modest reforms passed at the federal level. Uh, we have not even been able to legalize marijuana across the country. And as all of this happens, there are, you know, tens and tens and tens and hundreds of thousands of people often living in terrible conditions, waiting for some kind of relief. You know, you think about these people in South Carolina or more recently Florida, where the governors decided not to move people out of their prisons and evacuate them for hurricanes. You know, uh, you think about uh, all the people who are suffering with, you know, poor food conditions, you, you, you bad medical situations, uh, living in solitary confinement. 
you know, there's so many, you know, we've had, I guess, 38 episodes, and I think I've covered probably 15 or 16 of the major problems affecting people in prison right now. There are people right now who can't wait for us to close the prisons. That doesn't mean we shouldn't close the prisons or we shouldn't find better alternatives, but it means that right now we have to do whatever we can. And to some extent, that requires us to reimagine what we're doing, and at least at the very base, return the humanity to how we treat people in prisons and jails and to get rid of the punitive, the purely punitive, uh, you know, way that we look at how we uh, deal with incarcerated people now. You know, like I said before, you know, we're struggling to even get, you know, modern, moderate uh, things passed right now. There's a risk that we imagine that, that, and I understand there is a risk that, you know, if we were to imagine a legitimate prison, you know, if we were to come up with a model that everybody thinks is okay, then really what we've done is reconstitute the prison in a different way. And I think I understand where the abolitionists are coming from here. Uh, you know, we don't want to do that. We don't want to imagine a new mousetrap and then just kind of forget that the whole point is not to have that as part of our system. Uh, I guess I'm hopeful that this new supposedly quote-unquote legitimate prison would so little resemble what we know as a prison now that it might not be as morally objectionable. You know, if the punitive nature of prison is totally removed from the idea of prison, then what remains might not be the thing that we all object to so much. And I understand the risk there too. And I think we should certainly be on guard against legitimizing the carceral project through reform efforts. Uh, I definitely understand where they're coming from there. But I also think it's really important that we continue to push the ball forward in trying to get as much relief for people in prisons as we can now. Anyway, thanks to Suki and to all the folks at the Square One Project for all the work that they're doing and to Vera too. Uh, as always, you can find the show notes or leave us a comment at decarcerationnation.com. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can do some though from patreon.com slash onpiratesatellite. You can also support us by leaving a five-star review from iTunes or like us on Stitcher or Spotify. Special thanks to Andrew Stein, who does the editing and post-production for me. Thanks so much for listening to the Decarceration Nation podcast. See you next time.